Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay, ta-da! The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Paperback Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be joined by sci-fi novelist J.M. Briscoe. And we'll be talking about hotels in books. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Good morning. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. As usual, it's a packed show. We've got J.M. Briscoe who will be joining us. She's the author of a fabulous science fiction thriller, The Girl with the Green Eyes, which I've just finished, all about designer babies. I know you're going to love it. And Julian and I will be talking about hotels in books and recommending our favourite reads in this area. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you all. And you're not sure why you're there, you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we really, really do want to hear from you. Uh, if you do have an author that you're particularly fond of um, or that you are running a book club, you know, pop us a line and uh, then let us know all about it. You can uh, drop me a line uh, with my, at my email address, which is julian at river.radio, uh, giving us all your news and we'll be delighted to share it on the air with our other listeners. Absolutely. So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we spotted in the press about books. And I spotted a great one, an opportunity to possess a piece of literary history as Ooh, a wow. rare fragment from Shakespeare's first folio is to be auctioned this week. Now, I know a gentleman called Bill Samuel, who mm-hmm. um, is the husband of a friend of mine, and he is part of the Foyles um, book family. Oh, And yes. he's written a book called The Accidental Bookseller, and I must, must get him on the show, actually. He's really, yes. really good. But he was saying that his grandfather, who founded Foyles Bookshop, had a first folio edition, and he remembers as a young boy... <sighs> going into the library and being able to take it down and read. Isn't that amazing? Gosh, yes, that is. So the first folio was published in 1623 and is the earliest collected edition of Shakespeare's work. So when he died, when Shakespeare died in 1616, there were only 17 of his plays that had been printed. So without the first folio, which collects... 36 of his plays together. So the 18 of his works, including things like Macbeth and The Tempest, might not have survived. So there are only, um, they think the 750 first folios were printed in total, and only 233 are known to have survived today. So a complete copy um, goes for over seven million pounds or (laughs) did last year when one was sold. So this fragment is the whole of one play, which is Henry the Fourth, part one. So it should be a bargain. Well, I would think so. But isn't it funny that um, a whole play can be called a fragment? (laughs) Yes, yes, that's right. (laughs) 
Um, there's a new biography um, out uh, about uh, uh, King George V, which is subtitled Never a Dull Moment, and it's just been published, uh, and the author is Jane Ridley. Now, uh, George V was famously reserved, dull and pious, um, which I must admit I wasn't too aware of. <laughs> but when he caught his wife, Queen Mary, reading a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover, he was naturally quite, you know, scandalised, <laughs> and he confiscated it right away. However... He was later discovered devouring this saucy book himself. Fantastic. (laughs) So, of course, Queen Mary was notoriously uh, a kleptomaniac, wasn't she? Yes, she was, yes. And the funny thing is, when you actually see pictures of um, Queen Mary, a very austere lady, Mm. I mean, to think that she was reading these rather smutty books (laughs) is quite extraordinary. But she probably pilfered that copy as well. (laughs) Probably. I understand when she went round for tea, you had to hide all your heirlooms. Because yes. she'd go, that is gorgeous. You'll want yes. to give that to me. <laughs> anyway, I think this book's going to be lots, lots of fun, lots of stories like that. I, I think it certainly will. Yes. So I spotted another great book which has got an exciting discovery in, and that is The Magnificent Women and the Flying Machines, written by Sally Smith. And she's discovered an unsung Britain. The lady's called Rose Spencer, and she was the first woman to fly at the controls of a flying machine. She took to the air alone aboard her husband's steerable balloon, which is obviously... Uh, um, acceptable as a flying machine Mm -hmm. and uh, she flew it around the polo field in uh, Crystal Palace in July 1902 so beating the woman who is glorified as the first uh, aviatrix by a whole year Um, but for some reason Rose Spencer's exploits went unrecognised despite Mm. it being reported in the paper and watched by famous people such as Arthur Conan Doyle and W.G. Grace who were obviously fascinated by the race to develop dirigible airships and things Mm. Um, so that sounds a great book with some marvellous stories of the beginnings of flight it does. Um, quite amazing. Uh, and, and, and rather nice to, to, to um, see that she's been referred to an, as an aviatrix. So I think it's rather nice that we keep these traditions. And I still think that actresses should be called actresses and not actors. Yes. But that's just my little um, take on things. Well done. And I have a little snippet um, of, of, of Jane Austen news for you. And there are two stories this week. The first is to do with the continuing search for the money to save the um, I think it's Ondersfield Library Collection, which requires a staggering £15 million to be raised to keep the collection in the country. Now, yes. we have reported on this in the past. That's right. Um, and so we're calling all Jane Austen fans to chip in and donate to keep this fantastic collection here so in the UK. Why is that? Pardon? Why are Jane Austen fans being called to donate? Well, because um, there is an example in the collection which will really delight uh, Jane Austen fans because there's a a letter, the only letter Jane Austen wrote declaring uh, her one and only love affair. Oh, fabulous. Mm -hmm. And it happened during a winter ball in 1796 when she was... Uh, 20 years old, and she wrote to her sister Cassandra to to confess her excitement. And I think this is really, really quite funny because when you when you hear, I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. He is a very gentlemanlike, 
good-looking, pleasant young man, I assure you. I love the profligate and shocking way of sitting down together. <laughs> no, I know. Absolutely. Good heavens. I can see all these people in almost Bateman cartoon style, you know, with their hands raised in the air in horror at this profligate sitting down. <laughs> now, unfortunately and very sadly, the affair lasted only five days and Jane never saw Tom Lefroy, her handsome Irish gentleman, again. Um, but... Um, Possibly he was um, 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 a model for one of the novels. He ended up marrying an heiress. But perhaps it was for all for the good that Jane remained um, single because she obviously flourished as an author and that might have been diminished um, or it might have gone altogether if she had married. Yes, yes. In fact, that uh, there's a film, isn't there? Uh, Becoming Jane with Jane. I believe so. Yes. Boy and Anne Hathaway, yes. which is based on that uh, on that letter. But obviously, we want to keep that letter in the UK. We don't want that yes. going off to an American no. No, uh, we don't. university. So the second story about Jane Austen is actually around the actor who played that dashing, dissolute Mr. Wickham. Oh, Mr. Wickham. The, yes. Yes, in the BBC's much loved adult adaption of uh, Pride and Prejudice. So the actor is called um, Adrian Louis and he's announced that he's writing a novel in which he takes Jane Austen's villa um, as his roguish protagonist. So um, Adrian Louis reckons that he'd much rather spend an evening in the town with George Wickham than Mr Darcy any day. So he'll be exploring what this charming cad does as he ages so we'll let you know when it gets published very gripping that'd be very interesting now i read in the press this week that on top of all the other things that are uh, in, in, in short supply there apparently there's going to be a shortage of paper and booksellers are stocking up on best-selling titles to ensure ample supplies for christmas now the reason for the shortage is not actually only the paper itself but uh, but delays in the supply chain which uh, is a fancy way of saying there's a shortage of lorry drivers i think heather um, now most of the color printing is undertaken in europe in the Far East. And so booksellers are, are concerned that if a title sells very well, publishers may not be able to get their reprinted stock back into the UK and into the shops to replenish in time. So this is why the booksellers um, are being prudent to bring in extra stocks. Yes. Now, the titles that have been earmarked for such a, a surge in demand include J.K. Rowling's The Christmas Pig, which is currently heading the bestseller list, as we discussed last week, Sally Rooney's Beautiful World World, where are you? And Kazuo uh, Ishiguro's Clara. Now, having said that, black and white printed books uh, are mainly printed here in the UK, so shouldn't really be affected by that. But interestingly, um, I was uh, saw a co- the Jane Schilling column um, earlier this week in the Daily Telegraph, oh, and yeah. she was commenting on yeah. on this and the shortages. And she came up with what I thought was a very good suggestion: was that if you can't get hold of your your, your latest Nigel Slater or Sally Rooney, then fill the gaps on your bookshelves <clears throat> uh, by visiting one of your local secondhand booksellers and choose something entirely different. And perhaps you might pick up one of those uh, forgotten books, which you and I mentioned quite frequently. Oh, and and yeah, you might even find a Shakespeare folio. <laughs> you never you, know. You never you know. You never know. No, absolutely. Because often these old books were used as binding, weren't they? Yes. Just sort of shoved in the bag. <laughs> or a coaster for a cup of tea, you know. <laughs> That's what we do today. 
<laughs> so the final story is from um, Stanley Johnson, who's, of course, the father of the Prime Minister. Mm. And he's got a new novel out, From an Antique Land. And rather sweetly, during his book launch, he quipped that some say it's unputdownable, but I say it's jolly difficult to pick up. It's a hefty book. Bless him. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and for all those who are interested, it's a taut and gripping political thriller set mainly in Cambodia and the States. So sounds sounds Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Coming up, we're looking at hotels in the book world. But first, I've been talking to the author J.M. Briscoe. Her book, The Girl with the Green Eyes, is published this week by Bad Press Inc. Now, I caught up with Jenny earlier this week and asked her first to read a little bit from the very first chapter of the book. I was nine years and two months old when I realised that there was something wrong with me. I I had suspected for some time that I was a bit different to some of my friends, that some of the things I said and did, not to mention some of the things that just seemed to happen around me, were a bit off. Like the time everyone in my class was laughing at Jason Miller doing impressions in the playground, and I just stood there, not laughing, until one by one they all turned to me and fell silent. Or that day in the park when my sister Maya turned from her perch on the climbing frame and gave me the oddest look until I glanced behind me to see a great crowd of toddlers all clustered about, just watching me. And then there was Katie Jennings, that little moron from next door. Well, I wonder what would happen if she kept lying to me. I didn't know why I was different. I didn't do it on purpose. I never demanded that my friends stop laughing at Jason. I didn't make those little kids follow me out of the playground and halfway home. It wasn't my fault their parents all freaked out. And with Katie, well, someone needed to punish her. Every time one of these things happened, I'd see the way other people were looking at me. My friends, my sister, my mother. And that feeling would tickle over the surface of my skin, like a mosquito looking for a juicy spot to pierce. Oh, that wasn't normal. That wasn't right. That was the off thing again. But I didn't know for sure that it was wrong. Not until the day in September when my mother bundled me into the car, drove me hundreds of miles away to the house of a stranger and told him, Bella is defective. You need to take her back. So tell me a little bit about the latest book, The Girl with the Green Eye. Okay, so it's uh, sort of a soft sci-fi book. But when I say soft, I mean, a reader once described it quite well. And they said it's it's sci-fi, but it doesn't feel like sci-fi. So it's quite accessible to people who maybe like the traditional sci-fi element. But it's also got enough sci-fi in it to hopefully appeal to to readers of that genre as well and it's sort of got a quite a central mother-daughter theme the main character has issues with her own mother she's got two mothers and she's also got a conflict going with her daughter and it's also a little bit of a thriller you kind of see this character you see her in the past you see her grow up but you also see her in the present day and she's kind of going on the run and you sort of learn how that's come about and that's very much tied in with the past storyline as well so it's kind of got a little bit of everything it's it's quite pacey it's quite kind of exciting but it's also got a few twists and turns i would definitely call it a thriller the combination of the two different time scales really adds to the excitement doesn't it so you reach one crescendo and then you're on to another crescendo in a different time period very much so and i quite like 
how kind of it all comes together at the end. So sort of you find out what, what happened in the past to kind of lead us to the point you get to at the very beginning when she when she goes on the run in the first place. So this is your first book. So are you a big science fiction fan or what made you think of writing this type of book? Well, interestingly enough, I actually started writing it in a very different form about 13 years ago, which was actually the final piece of coursework for my creative writing BA. And at the time, what I thought I was writing was a children's fantasy novel, which shows how far it's come since then. But actually, the extract that I handed in had Bella, it had Dr. Blake, it had a child character that was kind of ended up being a combination of a couple of the children characters in the book. So I didn't really know that I was writing science fiction I actually rewrote it a few times over the years and it was only when I rewrote it in its current form that I realized it was an adult book and um, it was science fiction so it's it's kind of hard to know why I sort of came around to the decision to write it in its current form but I suppose it was because it was just the story I wanted to tell it was the story I wanted to read and then it sort of naturally evolved into this sort of sci-fi thriller in its current form. <laughs> it's very much a book about family dynamics, but the science fiction element at the heart of it is genetic manipulation, would you say, or eugenics? It's kind of both, really. It's genetic modification, which is a kind of an ongoing theme throughout this book and the next two books in the series. But there's also family stuff mixed in there. So it's obviously Bella's family who've decided to have her genetically modified in the first place and and a lot of it's to do with the psychological implications of that as well it's a bit of a mixture really yeah i think it's quite a it's a controversial subject but also one that's brought into the news with covid there's all been this fear that it's sort of conspiracy theories all to do with uh, genetic manipulation you've also got a medicine with people looking at how to take disease away from bodies so what was the research you did a couple of different avenues of research. I suppose the science element, I wanted to look into genetic engineering and see how far it had come and whether the ideas that I was thinking about were actually possible in the first place. And it was quite like surprising to find out that a lot of, you know, it's come quite a long way. And actually some of the things weren't as far-fetched as I thought they were going to be. Of course, you know, you don't get the kind of superhuman children with supernatural abilities and things like that. I don't know if that's because the rules say you can't do that or if it's because it's not possible. I mean, it's it's difficult to know because there are so many regulations in that sort of realm. In terms of eugenics as well, that was really interesting because it does go back really, really far. And there's actually a conversation that takes place in the novel where they discuss how kind of ancient civilizations would leave their babies out on, on clifftops to kind of test their durability, which is, you know, it seems like a crazy notion to us. But when you sort of consider the ruthlessness of, of some of those civilizations and, and the way they lived, it's not all that hard to believe in some ways, which is quite shocking as well. It's interesting that the Spartans, that sort of approach was a eugenics program I suppose to see how strong people can be. Did it change your perspective on uh, the whole debate about whether it's good or bad to change people once you did all the research? I suppose it did a bit I mean I kind of always had the viewpoint that the, the sort of eugenics the science in in this book itself is kind of an example of, of why it's not good to kind of mess with people's with with their genes but it, you kind of can't really say that it's entirely bad because after all they're using some of this sort of technology to try and wipe out diseases and they and they have gotten quite far with that up to a certain point 
it's good to do it in the interests of humanity and progressing the human race but you probably shouldn't create designer babies because uh, that way kind of madness lies I suppose and which is something that I'm hoping that my book kind of gets across but it's all quite speculative as well so you have to take it all with a bit of a pinch of salt but of course yeah. it's fiction isn't it <laughs> yes definitely <laughs> so what did you prefer writing about did you prefer writing the science fiction elements or the family dynamic aspect of it all probably the family side of things I've always quite liked a kind of gritty sort of parent-child tension kind of story. So I really enjoyed that side of things. It was quite interesting to kind of do that, spanning the the kind of two storylines and exploring the different themes there and just letting them develop naturally. That was a lot easier, I think. The science, the science stuff kind of was a bit more, right, I need to research this and make sure I'm getting the terms right and keeping it a little bit vague. And one of the important um, characters of the the book was also the location, especially the house in Cornwall. (laughs) Is that one you created or is that one you're familiar Uh, with? Yes. So I kind of made up the house a little bit. It was a bit of an amalgamation of a few Airbnbs I've stayed in over the last few years, especially in Britain. But the house was kind of made up. The actual, the beach, when, when they walk down to the beach and it's sort of a hidden path that's all based on an actual real place which I'm not allowed to tell you where it is because my husband says oh then everyone will know and it won't be secret anymore but it's based on a very real location that um, is near Bude that my husband's family has been visiting for 50 odd years and we've all been to a few times and it's absolutely beautiful it's a very lovely sort of Cornish beach that kind of transforms when the tide goes out and becomes this massive expanse and then when the tide comes in, it becomes this little sort of cove with lots of rocks and uh, sheer drop and lots of danger and kind of, yeah, it's very atmospheric. So I found that quite inspiring when I went down there. Yeah, and that's how it's made it, it made its way into the book. <laughs> yeah, quite right. That's a great, a great thing to do. To have family dynamic between Bella, who's our heroine, and her daughter, Rhee, it was, was fabulous. It was very uh, recognisable, I think. But also it was interesting looking at Bella's relationship with her real mother and her foster mother as well I thought that was that was an interesting dynamic yes definitely I really enjoyed writing all of that and and that's sort of something that will continue it's, it's, it's going to be a core theme throughout the trilogy as a whole and the second book will look back again and see how she's got to the point where she's got to with her natural parents as well as with the foster parents as well so that was really interesting to to write and to explore so the trilogy that writing have you got a really clear idea of books two and three or is that something that will develop in your mind as you carry on? I've written books two and three mostly already. I really wanted to kind of have book three in particular. I wanted to have that sort of at least drafted before this book came out because I quite like to, I, I'm a bit of a planner when it comes to to writing fiction. I really like to have elements that are kind of revealed at the very end that are still relevant to the very beginning. So you've got sort of little clues and nuggets of of like possibilities and, and little sort of questions that come up in chapters one and two that aren't then maybe answered until the final chapter of, of book three. So I quite like the sort of continuity element to a trilogy. I'm definitely more of a planner than a kind of do it as it comes to me. Although a lot of it does kind of 
flow from just kind of a stream of consciousness, I suppose. But I like to know where I'm heading when I write each chapter. Yeah. And does that also mean, given that you've actually written the uh, next two books, that they'll be quite quick coming out? Well, that's something that will be up to, to my publisher. We're going to decide on a schedule in the new year. So, uh, yeah, so, but I'll definitely be keeping everybody informed on, on whenever I know <laughs> a rough time. We'll hopefully be releasing extra content as well in, in, in the interim. So I've got a few ideas of things to kind of keep everybody going. <laughs> oh, great. So that'll be on your website, will it? Yes, it should be. Yeah. And all the details will be either on my website or on my Twitter page or on both. And I've also got a Facebook um, author page as well. So I'll definitely be releasing all the details of everything that I come up with in the next few months. Yes, because I'm aware that there might be a bit of a gap between one and two and I don't want people to forget what's happened. <laughs> so you're working on books two and three now, but book one, The Girl with the Green Eyes, is published this week. So congratulations, Jenny. That's brilliant and really hope it as well for you. Thank you very much. I've got to say, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, Jenny was telling me it was quite a, a chore to try and find a publisher. And as she was searching, she got a little bit downhearted. But she was shortlisted for something called the Bridport Prize, which is for um, unpublished manuscripts. Oh, and uh, so she sort of sent it in. And out of a field of 16,000 entries, she got down to the last, uh, last 20. And that really gave her the impetus to sort of continue her search for a publisher or a literary agent and I'm really glad she did um so the girl with the green eyes is available now and published by bad press inc good for her Hotel is a seductive setting for a novelist. It houses a wide spectrum of people who don't know each other, yet who spend nights under the same roof and are affected by one another's behaviour in ways that may not be conscious of. So they hear each other's bathwater draining away and they catch snippets of conversations in the lifts. So a couple in the hotel lobby might be lifelong partners or lovers making the most of anonymity. And a gang of three who arrive at two o'clock in the morning might be business colleagues who've just closed a deal in a different time zone or murderers who've recently disposed of their victim. And there's also a wide spectrum of luxury and sophistication from flea-bitten hovels to luxury we can only dream of. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Indeed, indeed. But we'll start off with a short poem by our very own Mike Burton called The Coffee Spoon. And it's very apt because the hotel is the same name as Heather's first choice of book. The Coffee Spoon. He stirred the coffee almost constantly without a thought in his head, as he sat in the foyer of the Hotel du Lac, his newspaper lay unread. It was then she walked into his life and took his breath clean away. The spoon lay listless in the cup, stirring done today. 
Words wouldn't form across his lips, and she barely made a glance. But she lingered at reception in the early lover's dance. What to do now she was gone, his thoughts now spinning round. Calm replaced with dizziness, feet floating off the ground. He had to get some fresh air, and so he stepped outside into the bustling Paris streets, but calm for him denied. I must find a way to talk to her, but just what can I say? I'm a grown man standing here, but a boy to run away. He turned, determined not to miss his chance, and there she was in front of him. Two new lovers meeting now. Let the dance begin. Bonjour, je suis Isabelle. Fantastic. <laughs> Very good. So, yes, yeah, so the lovers there in Mike's uh, poem met at the Hotel de Lac, which is the title of my first book, The Hotel de Lac by Anita Bruckner. Now, you might remember that this is a charming gem which won the Booker Prize in 1984 and <laughs> described back then by The Spectator as a modern classic. So the narrator is a middle-aged author of clever romance novels called Edith Hope. And she's been forced into temporary exile to a sort of like a stolid Swiss hotel of the book's title after romantic indiscretion that has outraged her friends so much that they've ordered her to go away to have a good long think about it all. Indeed. I don't know. This is obviously 1984. Yes. So gosh. at first, Edith does indeed mope around, sort of failing to write her latest blousy novel and trying to decide how she should make her way through life and soaking up and reflecting back uh, the melancholy atmosphere of her surroundings. So it was autumn in... Um, it's autumn in Switzerland and the mist comes down over mm. the lake quite a lot. But uh, it's wonderfully handled and the descriptions of the sort of the quiet snooty hotel where one imagines the air is sort of heavy as that old fashioned furniture are really as evocative as they are amusing. So let's listen to her initial thoughts about the hotel. The Hotel du Lac, Famille Huber, was a stolid and dignified building, a house of repute, a traditional establishment used to welcoming the prudent, the well-to-do, the retired, the self-effacing, the respected patrons of an earlier era of tourism. It had made little effort to smarten itself up for the passing trade, which is always despised. Its furnishings, although austere, were of excellent quality, its linen spotless, its service impeccable. Its reputation among knowledgeable professionals attracted apprentices of good character who had a serious interest in the hotel trade. But this was the only concession it made to a recognition of its own resources. As far as the guests were concerned, it took a perverse pride in its very absence of attractions, so that any visitor mildly looking for a room would be puzzled and deflected by the sparseness of the terrace, the muted hush of the lobby, the absence of piped music, public telephones, advertisements for scenic guided tours, or notice boards directing one to the amenities of the town. There was no sauna, no hairdresser, and certainly no glass cases displaying items of jewellery. The bar was small and dark, and its austerity did not encourage people to linger. It was implied that prolonged drinking, whether for purposes of business or as a personal indulgence, was not comme il faut, 
and if thought absolutely necessary, should be conducted either in the privacy of one's suite or in the more popular establishments where such leanings were not unknown. Chambermaids were rarely encountered after 10 o'clock in the morning, by which time all household noises had to be silenced. No vacuuming was heard, no carts of dirty linen were glimpsed after that time. A discreet rustle announced the reappearance of the maids to turn down the beds and tidy the rooms once the guests had finished changing to go down to dinner. The only publicity from which the hotel could not distance itself was a word-of-mouth recommendations of patrons of long-standing. What it had to offer was a mild form of sanctuary, an assurance of privacy, and the protection and the discretion that attached themselves to blamelessness. This last quality being less than attractive to a surprising number of people, the Hotel du Lac was usually half empty, and at this time of the year, at the end of the season, was resigned to catering for a mere handful of guests before closing its doors for the winter. The few visitors who were left from the modest number who had taken their decorous holiday in the high summer months were, however, treated with the same courtesy and deference as if they were treasured patrons of long standing, which in some cases they were. Naturally, no attempt was made to entertain them. Their needs were provided for and their characters perused with equal care. It was assumed that they would live up to the hotel standards, just as a hotel would live up to theirs. And if any problems were encountered, these problems would be dealt with discreetly. In this way, the hotel was known as a place which was likely to attract unfavourable attention, a place guaranteed to provide a restorative sojourn for those whom life has mistreated or merely fatigued. Its name and situation figured in the card indexes of those whose business it is to know such things. Certain doctors knew it, many solicitors knew it, brokers and accountants knew it. Travel agents did not know it, or had forgotten it. Those families who benefit from the periodic absence of one or more of their troublesome members treasured it, and the word got round. I think I know a few hotels like that, even now. Um, <laughs> yes. So- <laughs> So meanwhile, I mean, that's a beautiful, evocative description of uh, the hotel foyer. And that the portrayals of the other guests are positively, delightfully cruel, um, especially the overbearing, over-moneyed Mrs. Pussy and her curiously devoted daughter, who decides to make cheering Edith up their project. Uh, naturally, they only succeed in boring and patronising her. But even so, the distraction that they and others provide lift Edith, and it comes as a pleasant surprise somewhere around two-thirds of the uh, way through the book to realise that Edith is on the mend. So it's quite a small book. It's just less than 200 pages. And Mm. it's very pleasant and thought-provoking. And it's got a great twist, an interesting development near the end of the book, and then a final twist at the very end, which keeps the reader's interest to the final page. So delightful book. So Anita Bruckner came late to writing novels. So her first novel was published when she was 53. Which is, yeah, that's amazing, Mm. isn't it? And she had a rather distinguished career as an an art historian beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I think that her delicious details of people come, you can imagine her sitting in hotel foyers and paying close attention to Mm. those around her, just like she would a painting. Uh, It's really great. And as I say, she did win the 
Booker Prize, which is one of the most prestigious prizes uh, mm. in literary in the literary world. But instead of it being a huge triumph, I think I don't think it was because all the critics at the time were really a bit snooty about her winning because they felt that um, J.G. Ballard should have won instead. Now, not necessarily for the book that he had had put in that had got to the shortlist, but just because he deserved to win a Booker Prize. So I think that um, they're a bit snooty about uh, uh, the Hotel de Lac, but I think you should buy it, especially if you relish a blend of sort of extra dry humour and tart, tartly wistful introspection. I think you'll find it a delightful and provocative pleasure. Yeah, I think it sounds, sounds really good. And um, pardon me, uh, my choice um, follows on in a way of... Uh, um, uh, uh, describing evocative um, hotels. And I've chosen Hotel Hotel Bemelmans mm. by Ludwig Bemelmans. And it's a really charming tale of life at the Hotel Splendide in New York. And it's narrated by a young Ludwig Bemelmans who, having been brought up in a hotel in Austria, found himself at the age of 16 being shipped off to America in 1914 with some money in his pocket, a couple of pistols with which to fend off natives, so he thought. <laughs> Is that the Americans? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and a letter of introduction to one of the grander hotels. Now, the reason for his exile, Ludwig claimed, was that he shot a head waiter who was working uh, at one of his uncle's hotels. Nothing, anyway, he nothing to do York. with the uh, the date being 1914 and quite dangerous <laughs> to be in Austria yes. at that time. Um, well, no, I, I think in this, well, possibly so. But I mean, but uh, if you had actually shot the head waiter, it probably wasn't a good <laughs> idea, really. Um, in fact, actually, it was, as the story evolves, it actually was an altercation with a busboy. But anyway, <laughs> I, I think he actually tried to embellish it a yes. little bit. But when he got to uh, to, to New York, he, he spoke very little English. He spoke German, he spoke French, but um, he, he got a job first at the Hotel Astor, and then he moved to the Hotel McAlpin before uh, getting his third letter of introduction and heading off to the um, Hotel Splendide and to the office of Mr. Otto Brauhaus, who's the manager. Mm. And from there, uh, there on in, Ludwig guides us through the world, of, which is the Hotel Splendide, and he introduces us to its guests and its staff. Um, in addition to Mr. Brauhaus, the manager, we meet the two victors um, who run two of the restaurants. One is corpulent and the other's thin. Then there is uh, Mess Poulet, who is the chef d'orang, who helps uh, Ludwig with his French, and Mr. Serafini, who's the um, sleek assistant head waiter, yeah. and Mr. Sigsag, among others. Now, each chapter is a day in the life of the hotel, dealing with the comings and goings of guests, their likes, their dislikes, uh, mishaps that go on, including what happens when a corps de ballet meets a girl-hungry magician. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very good story, very, very good description there. And, of course, there is gossip. Hotels run on gossip. And we have a little bit of a reading about gossip. Right. Hotel Bemelmans, Chapter 16, The Hispano. The best source of information about the guests of the Hotel Splendide was not its credit department or the manager's office, but the courier's dining room. Under the heading of couriers came the chauffeurs, valets, butlers, nurses and footmen who were not employed by the hotel but travelled with the guests as their personal servants. To them were assigned small rooms on the air shafts. They were fed a table d'hote menu in the courier's dining room. 
This apartment was a market for scandal, a place to which they all rushed and in which they lingered over the second and third cups of coffee, comparing notes, exchanging griefs and complaints. In English, French, German, Italian and Spanish, and in all the various dialects of these languages, the infirmities and vices of the great were laid bare. The choicest filth was on tap in the courier's dining room, and from there it flowed out through the hotel. The best items travelled all the way up to the roof, where the Splendides florist presided over his hot house, and all the way down to the fourth basement, where the plumbers had their workshop. One rainy April afternoon, the telephone rang in my office. When I picked up the receiver, Pacifico, the valet of the Cuban Marquis, who was staying at their hotel, asked me whether I'd like to buy a car. A fine car, very cheap. If I wanted it, he said, would I buy it right away? This afternoon, please, he urged. I will sell it at any price. I want to be rid of this car. The Marquis's entourage occupied an entire floor. He was a small man, fat and smelling like a box of candy. He wore high heels and his blue-black hair was glued to his head with pomade. Through the gossip of the courier's dining room, I heard all about him. I knew that he was kind to Pacifico one day, embraced him, gave him watches and rings, sent him to the theatre and beat him the next. I knew also that the Marquis had a wife and many children in a place in Havana, that he had a house in Paris and that here in New York he resided with a young girl he had brought along from France. Her name was Nicole but the Cuban servants called her La Platina because of her bleached yellow hair. She was a routine French mannequin, nice enough with a sweet face, a small mouth and nose, and the glossy eyes of a Pomeranian. On the street, smartly dressed in fine furs, her eyes shaded by her hat, she was quite exciting. But in the corridors and restaurants of the Splendide, where women of fortunate faces and figures were as common as champagne bottles, no one turned around to look at her. That's a great phrase, as common as champagne bottles. Yes, yes it is. It's lovely. <laughs> that is. Um, and I, well, I should mention that the Hispano that was referred to is a motor car, and it was made by a, manuf- a Spanish manufacturer of luxury limousines, which was called the Hispano Suiza Company, which was established in 1904, and these cars were quite splendid. Um, now, Hotel uh, Bemelmans was first published in 1956 and, and was reissued in 2000. 2002, which is the edition I'm referring to by EP Press, and it's still in print. And the 2002 um, paperback edition sports not only an endorsement um, on the front cover by the late Anthony oh, Bourdain, but, yes, but also quite a long introduction by Anthony Bourdain as well. And it's really very interesting. Mm. Um, and the illustrations, which are really charming throughout, they are by the author himself. Now, Ludwig Bimmelmans is probably best known for his seven Madeline stories about young Madeline, uh, a young girl, six of which were published in his lifetime, the first in 1939 and the seventh after his death. Now, for quite a, a prolific writer and uh, cartoonist, mm. um, he's died very young um, in 1962. Only He was only 64 years old Gosh. and he died from pancreatic, pancreatic cancer. Gosh, 
What would we have mm. had from him if he just know. stayed? Because yeah. I think I think um, before, up until I think it was uh, over forty books he'd written. I mean, it was a phenomenal wow. um, writer and and he essays and all sorts of things. But I really do recommend the book. It really is lovely. It's very charming. As I say, it's still in print. Uh, it's it's priced at twelve pounds ninety nine. Um, I my edition um, was given to me by a friend of mine, Tommy, who lives in Switzerland. Oh yes. And uh, I think it was one when it was first published because mine was priced at six ninety nine. So you can see Ooh. how things have changed. <laughs> lordy, <laughs> it's double lordy. the price and double the enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about enjoyment, my book is the uh, best exotic marigold oh, yes. hotel. Now, did you know? I didn't know this until I did some research on it. When it was first published, they chose the title "These Foolish Things." Really? Uh, yeah, which is quite an interesting title. Mm. I'm not sure why you'd have that. Anyway, the book's written by Deborah Mogger and it's fabulous. Now, luckily for obviously all of us, it was picked up by a film company who mm. changed the title uh, for the film to the best exotic Marigold Hotel and then the publishing company followed suit. But I'm not sure that these foolish things would have been nearly as successful. Um, no, because it, I mean, because because in fact, actually, uh, the uh, best exotic marigold hotel sums it all up. And yes. Because, but these foolish things, yeah, I mean, it, it probably it wouldn't have appealed um, to no. me um, no. because it doesn't doesn't make any reference at all to a hotel, and that's the whole point, isn't it? Again, it's the hotel, okay, in India, um, but it that's the centre, and this is what draws, um, obviously, for various reasons, medical and otherwise. But yeah, what a funny, yeah. Funny anyway. Title. Yeah, so, exactly. Anyway. Um, it just shows you that a title is, uh, is important. But as you were saying, the book is all about uh, this group of strangers that leave England to begin a new life enticed rather, by advertisements for a luxury retirement home in India. And of course, on arrival, they discover that the palace is a shell of its former self and the staff little more than eccentric and the days of the Raj appear to have long gone. But they discover life and love can begin again, even in the most unexpected circumstances. And it's really a fabulous book. And I think it's all about raging against the coming of old age. Mm. Um, and Deborah Yog, uh, Mugger, the author, had lived in Pakistan for two years. So I think she must have had lots uh. of examples. Um, mm. Certainly, I've lived in India for a few years. And you can go to these amazing palace hotels um, that are a little bit um i've sort of seen better days i'm going mm -hmm, to say mm -hmm. uh, yes. but are still marvelous and you can really feel um uh, the potential in them and it's a, mm. a marvelous marvelous place to go on holiday so the film of the book follows the plot lines the general plot lines quite well and of course it features such stalwarts as judy dench maggie smith tom wilkinson bill nighy it was an incredible cast Penelope mm. wilson Celia imry ronald pickup and a sequel of the film was made, but Deborah Mogger wasn't involved in the plot. But hopefully right. she benefited financially from the use of her characters. Um, I think what's interesting about the book, where it differs, is that the book also has some serious things to say about how we perceive the elderly. And um, so the people in the book didn't just decide to move far from their homes to this 
different culture on a just a whim mm. most of them moved because they had so little money that they needed to live in a place where their funds would stretch further and of course they'd been neglected by their families and made to feel they were a burden to their children mm. and um, I think that sometimes young people do disregard the older generation and there does come a time when the oldies are sort of like released from responsibility for their children and possibly from their parents as they mm-hmm. they become next in line on the conveyor belt of death, as it were. Yes. <laughs> but it, that provides this sort of magical freedom, adventure and expression that they're able then to, um, to develop and launch themselves on new adventures and experiences before it's too late. And I think that's, this is what that book's all about. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Okay, off to India we go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I'm definitely for that. <laughs> well, um, my choice. Um, if this is before before you uh, go into retirement in India. This is this is uh, my choice is for a rather luxurious stay in London, and it's um, at Bertram's Hotel by Agatha Christie. Oh, which, lovely. Yes, and I think it. I don't know if it's it's one that springs to the mind of many uh, of our listeners. I think it's uh, perhaps one that uh, goes under the radar. Yeah. But it was first published in 1965 um, in the Collins. Cr- Cr- Collins Crime Club series. And it is one of my favourite Christie novels because all of the action takes place within Bertram's Hotel or its immediate um, um, surroundings. Therefore, you don't have to go galloping around the county with Miss Marple looking for the clues. It's all there almost in front of you. Now, Bertram's is thought to have been inspired by Brown's Hotel in London, which happened to be a favourite hotel of Agatha Christie's, but it could also have been uh, based on Fleming's Hotel, which is in Mayfair. Now, the story, as I mentioned, is Jane, uh, is Jane Marple uh, uh, is, is the sleuth in this one. And she's taking a two-week holiday in London, paid for uh, by her rather generous nephew, Raymond West. And so Jane decides that she'd like to stay at Bertram's Hotel, where she stayed as a young girl. Right. Now, since the war, Bertram's Hotel had been renovated, restoring it um, to its former Edwardian magnificence. And it still attracts a certain clientele, which mm-hmm. includes important church figures, faded aristocrats, which includes Miss Marple's friend, Lady Selina Hazy, who comes to take tea um, in the afternoons but confuses people because she can't see very well. So <laughs> right. she's looking at people and this is, oh, that's so-and-so, and it's not. And, of course, Miss Marple naturally meets several interesting guests, including the notorious Lady Bess Sedgwick, a famous adventuress, along with um, uh, Lady Sedgwick's estranged daughter, Elvira Blake. Now, let's listen to a little bit of a description of the hotel which comes at the beginning of the book okay in the heart of the west end there are many quiet pockets unknown to almost all but taxi drivers who traverse them with expert knowledge and arrive triumphantly thereby at park lane barclay square or south audley street if you turn off on an unpretentious street from the park and tell left and right once or twice, you'll find yourself in a quiet street with Bertram's Hotel on the right-hand side. Bertram's Hotel had been there a long time. During the war, houses were demolished on the right of it and a little further down on the left of it, but Bertram's itself remained unscathed. Naturally, it could not escape being as house agents would say, scratched, bruised and marked. But by the expenditure of only a reasonable amount of money, it was restored to its original condition. 
By 1955, it looked precisely as it had looked in 1939, dignified, unostentatious and quietly expensive. Such as Bertram's, patronised over a long stretch of years by the higher echelons of the clergy, dowager ladies of the aristocracy up from the country, girls on their way home for the holidays from expensive finishing schools. So few places where a girl can stay alone in London, but of course it's quite all right at Bertram's. We have stayed there for years. There had, of course, been many other hotels on the model of Bertram's. Some still existed, but nearly all had felt the wind of change. They had necessarily to modernise themselves to cater for a different clientele. Bertram's, too, had had to change, but it had been done so cleverly that it was not at all apparent at the first casual glance. Outside, the steps that led up to the big swing doors stood what at first sight appeared to be no less than a field marshal. Gold braid and metal ribbons adorned a broad and manly chest. His deportment was perfect. He received you with tender concern as you emerged with rheumatic difficulty from a taxi or a car, guided you carefully up the steps and piloted you through the silently swinging doorway. Inside, if this was the first time you'd visited Bertram's, you felt almost with alarm that you re-entered a vanished world. Time had gone back. You were in Edwardian England once again. There was, of course, central heating, but it was not apparent. As it had always been in the big central lounge, there were two magnificent coal fires. Beside them, big brass coal scuttles shone in the way they used to shine when Edwardian housemaids polished them, and they were filled with exactly the right-sized lumps of coal. There was a general appearance of rich red velvet and plushy cosiness. The armchairs were not of this time and age. They were well above the level of the floor, so that rheumatic old ladies had not to struggle in an undignified manner in order to get to to their feet. The seats of the chairs did not, as in so many modern high-priced armchairs, stop halfway between the thigh and the knee, thereby inflicting agony on those suffering from arthritis and sciatica. And they were not all of a pattern. There were straight backs and reclining backs, different widths to accommodate the slender and the obese. People of almost any dimension could find a comfortable chair at Bertram's. Excellent. Uh, yeah, really good. Uh, and I think it really uh, gives that wonderful description of this fantastic hotel. Now, there are two um, two strands uh, to the plot running through the book. One is Elvira's preoccupation with the size of her inheritance. That's something nice to worry about. <laughs> and who'll get it in the event of her death. And the second strand is when Miss Marble begins noticing unusual things involving the staff and guests, especially Lady Bess Sedgwick. Um, at the same time, Chief Inspector Dave is investigating several brazen robberies that seemed to include a connection to Bertram's. Mm, indeed. Now, Lady Bess, uh, La- uh, Lady Bess um, is a woman who likes uh, doing things that today would be probably called extreme sports. I mean, she flies aeroplanes solo over the ocean, she drives racing cars, and she enjoys doing just about anything and everything a lady of her generation should not have done. And that includes breaking the law. Now, there's a forgetful canon who uh, ends up getting uh, kidnapped. Mail trains are being robbed, uh, secret past lives, gunshots ringing out, fast car chases, and you'll just have to read the story to find out what happens. Oh, that sounds great. I haven't read and the story it, at all. It, it really, it is a great book. Um, and uh, it, it's so atmospheric. And, and, and 
it's been adapted for television. Um, and the, the in, in my opinion, the best one was Joan Hickson in 1987 playing Miss Marple. Radio 4 dramatised it in 2004. And it was adapted again in, in 2007 for television. And that featured Geraldine McEwen playing um, the elderly sleuth. Um, but there were quite a lot of changes to that plot. But I really do recommend it. And I think at the end of it, yeah. the, the sense the sense that it left me me this wonderful hotel the description of fantastic it's, it was it was almost a sham oh right so yeah. the hotel was a, a facade in a way yes and i think that's what that's what left me the saddest feeling was oh. this fantastic hotel but really what you know was it um yeah anyway but you must read it you you've got to brilliant yeah i do think it's a shame that television sort of substantially changes it from the novels especially when Agatha Christie is such a good plotter. Mm. There's yes. no need to add anything. No, no. And I think away. the Joan Hickson one was 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 very faithful. Yes. Um, that was a really very good one. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yes, you're right. When when fiddling about goes on, it's it's it, it's not really yeah. it's not really a justice to the work. Yeah. I think it's anyway. interesting that um, the books that we've chosen all have um, a sort of like a, a feel of that faded elegance. Yes. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Yes, no, no, except having said that, I mean, my um, my hotel Bemelmans, I mean, it wasn't faded. No, it was no, hotel Spondude. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all have to go. <laughs> Does yes. it exist? Um, it, 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 it's, um, I think it was based, um, I think it might have been based on the Carlisle in New York, um, but unfortunately, no, not, um, n- not the hotel Splendid itself. <laughs> That's yeah. a shame, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, so we've got one more thing to add before we uh, we wrap up for uh, for this morning, and that is that the uh, Cook and Festival has another winter warmer to keep us entertained. Now, last Saturday, Nick Hornby was in town, and I've mm. got to say, absolutely fabulous evening. It was really mm-hmm. marvellous. So um, on Friday, the 26th of November, the best-selling thriller writer Gerald Seymour will be in conversation. And that's going to take place in Pinder Hall in Cookham. And of course, Gerald Seymour is a master storyteller. Um, you might know him from Harry's Game, which I think was his, fa- his most famous book. Um, and also that iconic music, which yes, I must... which was Clannad, I think, which we we, we, we mentioned last yes. week, isn't it? and it's and the Clannad music, very haunting music. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Gerald Seymour was an ITN reporter, so he's obviously plundered his uh, his knowledge, and his characters populate this murky world of organised crime and terrorism, international conflict, and the intelligence um, communities. And um, his latest book is out um, now. It's going to be launched in paperback uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And um, so book your tickets by visiting www.cookhamfestival.co.uk. It's going to be a great evening. It certainly sounds it, and, and, and hurry up and book. And you're listening to uh, River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley, and don't forget, we do really want to hear from you. So if you have um, an author you want to tell us about, a book that you're reading, please de- drop us a line. Um, you can uh, get in touch with me um, on uh, julian at river.radio or heather at heather at 
river.radio with any of your book news and we'll share it. Now, our hour is almost up, so it's a very big thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And thanks also to the author, J.M. Briscoe, for her thrilling book, The Girl with the Green Eyes, published by Bad Press Inc. and available in all good bookshops now. And thanks to Mike Burton for his poem and reading. Now, other books that we've been recommending today are George V, Never a Dull Moment by Jane Ridley. Magnificent Women and Flying Machines by Sally Smith. Stanley Johnson from An Antique Land, Black Spring Press Limited. Hotel de Lac by Anita Bruckner, published by Penguin. Hotel Bemelmans by Ludwig Bemelmans, published by Ebury Press. The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel uh, by Deborah Mogger, first um, published as These Foolish Things, and it's uh, published by Penguin Books. And last but not least, at Bertram's Hotel by Agatha Christie, published by HarperCollins. Great. And do keep listening uh, to River Radio as Let's Talk Business is on at one o'clock today. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us, then you can listen again directly from the website. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.